This morning's Bible reading is from Joel 2, verses 1 to 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops, like a crackling fire-consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for, for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves they enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Well, uh, keep those uh, Bible readings open and uh, yeah, make sure we're hearing from God and not just from things made up in my head. Let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to this rather heavy part of Scripture, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes uh, to see wonderful things in your word. Uh, we pray that you would uh, change the way we think, where we think wrongly. We pray that you would change our hearts to love what you love and hate what you hate. And we pray that uh, you would fill us with a desire to obey you no matter the cost. Amen. Well, have you ever had to sound the alarm for some reason? Uh, before we came here, I was working at a school for a little while and um, 
while, uh, while we was there, they built a new library and they moved our staff room to the old library. And uh, in this staff room, I'd claimed uh, one of the old bookshelves and that was my pantry. I had my wheat bix and all sorts of stuff in there. You know, I had this whole kind of, that was like Scott's little section. Uh, and I'd, I'd claimed a fry pan from the home ec department and uh, I'd do fry-ups for my lunch, you know, so eggs, I'd cook steak, I'd do, you know, I'd cook mince and have tacos, I'd do capsicums and kebabs and all sorts of things. And um, one day, uh, not long after we'd moved into this new staff room, the old library, uh, I'm, I'm there, I'm, I'm starving and I'm cooking up my lunch and I'm cooking some mushrooms and, you know, a big knob of butter and a little bit of chilli sauce and you know, a bit of cracked pepper and salt in there, you know, real gourmet kind of cook up. And uh, it smelled fantastic, my mouth buds were watering, when all of a sudden, the alarm went off. This voice over the loudspeaker, emergency, emergency, evacuate, emergency. And it took me a couple of seconds before I realised why the alarm had gone off, and it was all me and my mushrooms. Uh, the entire school had to evacuate to the park across the road and it just so happened the year 12s had just started their first trial exam and they'd just finished the reading time and begun to write and got evacuated and they had to scrap the whole exam and uh, get a supplementary from the Department of Education. It didn't take long for sort of word to get around, you know, that it was Scott and his mushrooms who had set the whole thing off. I don't think it's my fault. They should have changed the smoke alarms. But anyway, anyway, it, no one had mushrooms on the griller uh, when Joel told people to sound the alarm. Uh, the alarm that Joel sounds is no false alarm, no mushrooms on the grill kind of experience. The alarm that Joel tells us to sound is the real deal. Uh, it's the most serious, most somber, uh, most urgent warning that there ever could be. As we saw last week uh, in the first chapter of Joel, uh, the people of Judah had already been ravaged by disaster and turmoil. They'd faced plagues and invasion and drought and fire. But actually now, Joel says, you haven't seen anything yet. You thought that was bad. That doesn't even compare to what's coming. A day is coming when God himself will go to war with all peoples of the earth. Now, I know we just read it and uh, Louise read it very well, but I think we need to read it again just to let it soak in. Read with me at verse 1. Joel says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Actually, this is God speaking. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in times to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, green and lush. And behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop like cavalry with a noise like the chariots. They leap over mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, a mighty army that draws up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish and every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. 
They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in a line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heaven trembles. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. Have you ever stood on a hill or a mountain as the, as the dawn breaks and watched the light, you know, just relentlessly push out and, and cover all the earth? It doesn't matter. Nothing stops it from driving away the darkness. Trees, buildings, valleys. As the sun comes up, the dawn just relentlessly marches forward never stopping and that's what this army will be like nothing will slow it down nothing will stop it nothing will break its ranks it will come and keep coming until it covers the whole earth now one thing uh quite particular about this this part of the hills is uh well all of the hills really uh, is that during fire season, Keely and I have noticed just a, a constant underlying anxiety in everyone who lives in the hills. You know, we know that well, don't we? Uh, during fire season, everyone's just kind of got that what if in the back of their minds. What if this year is the big year? What if this year is the year that a, 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 a real serious fire comes that we can't stop? Is this year going to be the bad one? Now, I've never seen a really fast-moving fire front, uh, but I have seen... Uh, I've been close enough to a fire front to see the devastation it leaves behind and feel the blazing heat. When everything behind is just black and burned and charcoal, just a waste. Well, imagine fire that spreads across the entire horizon, moving as fast as a galloping horse and blazing with such intensity it destroys everything in its wake. But that's not all. As if that's not terrifying enough, behind it is an army so thick, so numerous, it's like a blanket rolling out over the earth. The sky goes dark, the earth shakes, the stars and the sun and the moon stop shining. Absolutely, incredibly terrifying. But actually most terrifying of all is there at verse 11. Have a look. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. Mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So I think the most terrifying thing of all this is not the fire or the army or the thunder, but it's the fact that it's God who's the one leading the charge against his creation, against the people that he made and breathed life into. How can this be? 
How could, how could this be that the God who created and who loves go to absolute war against his people? I've been building a pergola at our house uh, out of secondhand steel. Uh, and because it's secondhand steel, it's, you know, it's got old crusty paint on it and it's got sections where it's you know sort of bare and rusty and and you know the the, the old paint and the rust kind of really ruins the whole thing Uh, and if I leave it there uh, it's just going to keep corroding uh, and corroding and causing problems Uh, so I'm going to have to sand the whole thing back and then repaint it Uh, and I'd really love one of these things and big shout out to Calvin wrestling with things that don't work thanks mate now, uh, this is a, uh, a laser cleaner. And uh, if you've ever seen you know, footage of these, or one of these in action, uh, what it does is, is that laser literally just burns away all the oil, the dirt, the rust, the, the paint, uh, anything that's on there, leaving behind just fresh, bare, clean metal. And I'd love one of these because it would save a whole lot of you know, elbow grease uh, sanding away. But in this, in this prophecy, we kind of get a picture of like this, that this is what God is doing. Actually, the very first time in the scriptures we come across the, uh, the prophecy of the day of the Lord, we get the answer to why God is coming with an army. And it's in that second reading you have there in Isaiah 13. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger. To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars and the heavens will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. See, God can't stand to have this perfect world he created riddled with corrosive sin. Like those lasers purging away all the junk to leave clean, fresh metal behind. God is coming to purge his world of all sinners who arrogantly defiantly rebel against their one true king. Now to many, the day of the Lord seems kind of contrary to God's nature. Now isn't God love? How does this fit? But actually the day of the Lord is in perfect alignment with God's nature because he is perfect and he loves good and he hates sin. And he's just and holy and righteous. And he is the judge of all the earth. And so he must do right. He must judge wickedness. He cannot let it go unpunished. See, the day of the Lord is not contrary to God's character. It's actually the inevitable consequence of a world that's rejected God in light of who God is. It's a little bit like a drug dealer should expect, looking over their shoulder, one day the police will come and beat down the door and drag them away. We should actually expect that this is the inevitable consequence 
of a world who has rejected a good and perfect and pure God. We'll have nowhere to hide on that day. Verse 6. Every face turns pale. Verse 11. Who can endure it? Verse 3. Nothing escapes them. See, the day is coming, says the Lord, when he will come in destruction against every criminal. And so we need to sound the alarm. We need to let the world know that disaster is coming. But why bother? I mean, if it's inevitable, if it's unescapable, what's the point of letting people know? Isn't it better to just kind of go about in ignorant bliss and just pretend nothing's happening and get on with our lives, you know, in the short time that we have? Well, the reason why we need to sound the alarm is not just because God is coming, but because God has come. Have a look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Now, we humans are pretty complex creatures, aren't we? Uh, we can sort of burn with anger and we can bubble over with love. You know, we're, we're this mix of things that, that seem contradictory and for us, sometimes they are. And yet, if we're complex, how much more complex is God? He is so much more complex than us, yet he has no contradictions. This God who will blaze in judgment is the same God who bubbles over with blessing. On the day that he comes, no one will escape. But now the reason why he wants us to sound the alarm is to warn people to come and be saved because he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love. Now, a few weeks ago in Jonah, uh, I said that actually God repented from bringing destruction. Now, that's true, but... Uh, the word repent probably brings some unhelpful connotations of wrongdoing. And we know that God has done nothing wrong. We know actually that God's justice is absolutely pure and good. And here we see God doing that same thing. And, and that word, the word used here, relenting, is probably better uh, than the word repent in this, in this situation. We see here that God is a God who is holy. He is bound to judge. He must do right. But he's also a God who is gracious and loves to bless. And this is why Joel sounds the alarm. And it's interesting, uh, having just done Jonah a few weeks ago, how similar Jonah's, uh, Joel's response is to the king of Nineveh's response. Did you pick that up? In Jonah 3, I think we've got it on the screen. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. 
Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So here, Joel calls out to the Judeans and he says, imitate the Assyrians. Throw yourselves on God's mercy and see what a merciful God might do. And did you notice the blessing actually that Joel had in mind? Verse 14, he says, who knows, God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. I don't know if you think that's kind of a funny blessing, uh, hoping that God would give us something for us to give back to him. Seems kind of unusual, you know, what's, what's the point of that? Except for the fact that this is the thing that we 100% need more than anything. The thing we need most of all is a sacrifice that we can offer to God that he will accept in our place. And the reality is we have nothing that we can offer to God that is acceptable to him. We have nothing we can offer to God that he will accept in place of our lives, in place of our sin. We need God to provide that blessing, that offering for us. Who knows, says Joel, maybe God will give us that blessing that we need more than anything. And it's interesting here, isn't it, that all Joel can say at this point is maybe. Maybe. Who knows? God might. I mean, going off God's track record to Nineveh, to Israel, to Judah, well, it's a pretty darn strong maybe. There's lots and lots of Moments in history Joel could have pointed to and said, look, look how God has relented in the past. Look how God has given a blessing. Look how God has been merciful. But we don't have a maybe anymore, do we? Our message isn't a maybe, but an absolute certain assurance. Why? Because God has come. See, God did leave behind a blessing. What was the grain offering that the Lord gave to us? Jesus, the true bread that comes down from heaven, who was broken for us. What was the drink offering that God gave to us to be poured out to cover our sin and purify us? Well, it was the blood of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. God did turn and leave a blessing. Offerings that were acceptable to him, that he could take in our place. Offerings that we could never give in a million years. See, Jesus took our sin on himself. He took our place in death row. And he rose again to, not maybe, (laughs) to guarantee a blessing of redemption for all who turn to him with a pure heart, with their whole heart. Now that's an incredible 
merciful blessing. And the question is really, how then can we not sound the alarm? If this terrifying day of the Lord is coming and actually every single day it gets one day closer. Nobody will escape it. No one will endure it. And yet 99 times out of 100, I choose my comfort over sounding the alarm. I, rather than make things awkward, I, I choose not to speak and warn someone and call someone to the great news that Jesus has come and provides the blessing we need so that we can escape that dreadful day. 99 times out of 100, I choose cowardice instead of courage. Apathy instead of love. I choose to let these lambs go silently to the slaughter when I know the shepherd who could lead them to safety. I say nothing. I want to call us this morning to repent of our silence. I think every one of us is probably in this boat. Every one of us has had this siren in our hands from the day that we first believed the gospel. We have the message, God is coming and yet he has already come and by his death and resurrection we can have life. And yet every one of us is guilty of being silent on probably many occasions. Let's, as a church, repent. Let's decide that we're not going to do that anymore. Let's together decide, as Trinity Church Mount Barker, we will sound the alarm. We will lead these sheep from slaughter to their saviour. Let's choose courage over cowardice. Let's choose, let's decide that there won't be one person in our lives, one person in our community who will get to that day without having been warned, without having heard the alarm. Judgment is coming, but Jesus has come. That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it, to make a commitment like that? But it's nowhere near as scary as the alternative. That that dreadful day comes and people face it without Jesus. It would be easy for us today, I think, to walk away feeling a little bit heavy, feeling maybe a little bit guilty, feeling maybe a little bit like, oh, I wish I could do that, but I can't. Uh, it would be easy to go away and and just sort of let that wash away and, and get on with life. But that wouldn't be true repentance. See, repentance we actually see here in Joel, two things. We see it comes with action, and we see it's a community thing. See, it's not just a solo activity. We do repent individually, but we also repent communally. Have a look at verse 15. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, the nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, let the priests come, let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn. See, repentance is something individual, but it's also something collective that we do as a community. And it has a power and a transformative power when we as God's people gather together, repent together and pray, crying out to God that he would spare his people. And so I am going to literally right now call us to a fast and a sacred assembly. In two weeks' time, we have our prayer meeting on Monday night here, 7.30pm, gathering as a church to pray together. And so I'm calling young and old. This isn't just for the adults. Bring your kids. Youth, old, young, honeymoon or not, let's gather in two weeks' time to cry out to the Lord, to repent and ask him that we would no longer be silent, to ask him to use us to bring the people of this community out of darkness and death into the light and life of his son. And let's fast. Let's that day, let's, let's let our hunger teach us to hunger to see lost sheep be saved. Let's spend a day where we're not going to be legalistic about it. I don't want any diabetics keeling over because you haven't had anything. Maybe you just fast half the day. Make sure you drink water. Let's actually do what God has called Judah to do here. Not as some special magical miracle thing. But as a sign that's not just saying to God, but saying to ourselves, we are serious about this. Let's let that hunger teach us. And so on the 26th, I call us all to fast for the day, to join together in prayer. And let's see what God will do in our hearts, in our midst, and in our community. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a day that we'll look back on seeing that day that we repented, that day we cried out together, that day we fasted. It was a day that God changed us. Heavenly Father, would you help us to rend our hearts? Would you make us truly repentant for our failure, our failures on so many occasions to sound the alarm? May the reality of that day and then the wonder of what Christ did when he came and died in our place as our drink and our grain offering, may they totally shape and transform us and may they open our mouths to speak. Amen.